Our past has a way of haunting us, following us until it imprisons us behind the bronze gate of guilt and the iron bars of shame. I want you to imagine a four-level haunted house, and at each level you are forced to revisit a part of your past. Level one, you get there, it's not so bad. It's the foolishness of your past. So when I was young, I found myself almost daily in this place that made me as excited as a puppy dog when its owner comes home. My friends were there and every moment carried irresistible opportunities for me to make them laugh. But there were these evil tyrants there that demanded order. They always kept me from the fun and the chaos that I craved. And these evil tyrants were called teachers in the place called school. And at this place, each month, one student from each class was awarded the student of the month. And for eight years, the months would come and go. Some years I thought, it's okay, they're holding out for me for student of the year. Nope. Now, I can laugh off level one, but in level two, there I find things in my past I would never say from the stage. There are probably some dark secrets in your past that you wouldn't even tell your spouse or your best friend. And then you take the stairs to level three, and here you find yourself in a legal courtroom with people you love and those you have pained and wounded through your life. And on a big screen, there displays all your secrets, your vile thoughts, your lustful thoughts, everything plastered before those you love and hate to see. Many of you would rather die than endure that hell. And then, then comes level four. It's another courtroom. Everything is the same as level three, but there the judge's chambers open and out walks God. And I'm not talking about the warm and fuzzy version of God. I'm talking about the judge who walks out with the scepter of justice in one hand and the flaming sword of wrath in the other. The sight of it drops you to your knees and then the sword is lifted. <laughs> Everything. I mean, am I being dramatic? The Bible would say I'm not being dramatic enough. Everything inside of you is devoted to avoiding this haunted courtroom. You probably have repressed memories of your past to avoid this sinful courtroom that you would have to enter into. Today, I'd like to take you into the courtroom. And you say, no. And I say, I have to. Because facing your guilt in the courtroom is your only path to a love that sets you free. We're in week two of this four-week series called Tell Your Story. And we're doing something different than normal. I'm giving you homework. I'm like one of the tyrants of my past. And so that you should have some pieces of paper that you got as you came in. They're also on our website if you just want to download them. But here's the idea. God has given a story to you. He's in the story. I mean, the story is about you and him. 
And the story is a story worth being told. In fact, the world around you needs this story. The world needs your story. So over the next four weeks, we're going to write four short memoirs. You know what a memoir is? A memoir is a specific lens through which you look at your life through. So me, uh, I hated learning when I was under these tyrants, but then later in life, I discovered this love affair that I had with discovering truth and the wonder that came with all of it. So a memoir could be called my redemptive love affair with finding truth. Well, what Psalm 107 is going to be doing is basically giving you a lens through which to tell your story. It's a story that's true of you. And I want to tell you this too. If you're not a Christian, you can still do this. And the only question that you have to answer after you write this is do you want to step into this truth and find freedom? So we're in Psalm 107. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, which is, which is the introduction to all of this. And then the meat is 10 through 16. And then the last verse, verse 43, is the conclusion of it all. Psalm 1-7. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, before I open up the door of the courtroom, I want you to look at verse 2. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The NIV translation says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. This is your memoir, and it's supposed to be seen as the lens through which you read each of these sections we're going through. It's a story that must be shared with the world. And then notice, our verses start in verse 10 starts with the word some. And this is misleading because it's not that some Christians have had this story for their life. It's that every single Christian has gone through all four of these lenses or stories. They're true of every Christian. In fact, the word some isn't in the Hebrew. The translators are just doing this so you can understand that these parts are being separated. It, it should be read like this, maybe. Your first memoir begins like this, or your second memoir begins like this. Now, now, there's another thing I need to tell you about these memoirs and you in the Bible. The, the first week, you were victims, homeless orphans, victims to a world that is not your home. But this week, you're the villains in the story. 
In the Bible, all throughout it, if you read it right through, you'll find that Christians, God's people, are often either victims or villains in this story. And then, well, God does something. So, chapter one of your memoir, your peril, death's shadow, begins like this. The doors of the perilous courtroom open. You step in. You're shaking with fear. Your sins are on display, and they're testifying against you. And then the time comes for your sentencing, and the jury steps up, which is a jury filled with all of your sins. And then the sentence is read, and here it is. For you, eternity in the dark dungeon of death. Now, have you, have you ever seen the videos of someone being sentenced like it, right before the sentencing comes, they're guilty, but it's like they've got some hope. And then all of a sudden, as the sentence is read, the hope evaporates, the weight of truth hits them like the hammer of justice, and they break down weeping, and they're begging for mercy. And then they're dragged out crying, and the people that they love and that love them see them taken away forever. Verse 10 shows that that's the story of the Christian. It's the beginning of the story, but it's the story. So you're thrown into this dungeon's dark, shadowy death, and you're imprisoned to affliction in these chains. Now, what does that mean, imprisoned to affliction? Well, it's like there's a bully that's following you around, and he's pummeling you daily, and he's always lurking around the corner of these dark shadows, ready to find you and pounce on you, and he's ready to bury his fist in your heart, which is much worse than your face, because in your heart, what's happening is this bully is getting to your guilt and to your shame. It's plaguing you. And you don't just have this bully. You're in this dungeon of death. And once a day, you're allowed to go walk around, I suppose. But then you go walk around and you know the bullies, they're waiting for you. And you're spiritually dead. And physically here, it's like a zombie. How did this become your story? How has this become your truth? And the verses say, because we rebelled, we spurned the counsel of the Most High, which is another way of saying that you sinned. And why? Like, the Bible says, like, we know the consequences of it. But we do it anyways. Why would we do it? Why would we do that? Why would we? I mean, you know that feeling. You're like, don't do this. I know I shouldn't. And you find yourself doing the very thing you're telling yourself not to do. Why are you doing that? Because your heart, there's something wrong with it. You know, as soon as, as, soon as someone says, don't look over there. Everybody looks over there. It's because your heart wants to look. It wants to do the thing it's told not to do. As soon as you say, do this, your heart wants to turn away and do something else. The heart is tricky. And even now, it's tricking you. It's deceiving you, making you think, no, but David, I'm not that bad. And I will say you're not. You're not that bad at all when you compare yourself to the vile person that you're sitting next to. 
Because you know what you're doing? You're finding, not the person next to you, but you know what I mean. It's like you're, you're finding the worst in people because it's making you feel better. It's like becoming your therapy. And you need a new therapist. Someone who's willing to tell you the truth. What your sin really is. It's cosmic treason. Every single sin. Like you're ste- even you're stepping towards it. You're stepping towards the throne of God, not to worship him, but to remove him so you might put yourself in his place. Every wrongdoing is a swing of the sword against God. And every act of lawlessness, it's a knife into what is good and right and beautiful. And you don't like me right now. I'm being kind of mean to you because I'm calling you a sinner. There's an atheist named Andrew Dalbanco, and he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And in it, he says, we have created a big problem for ourselves. We have done something that has eliminated the words we need to describe the experience of what it's like in this world. And the two words he says that we have removed, this is an atheist, he says we have removed sin and evil. And he says now we have this reality that's closing in on us, but we've made these words a myth, so now we have no words to describe the reality that's closing in. He wants to bring these words back. And we're only talking here about sin of what not to do. But to be worthy of heaven, you have to be beautifully human in every way. For example, to be human is the way you're meant to is to never tell a lie. Why is lying so bad? Like, why do you lie? Well, there's a part of you that's lying like, okay, I don't want to offend somebody. And, like, you're making yourself sound a little too noble there. Because what's really behind it is you know the truth is costly. If you're going to love someone, you know that if you tell someone the truth and you love them, you're going to have to walk through that truth with them. And that's going to require time and energy and sacrifice. So it's easier to just tell a lie. The reality is that every sin, it's not just a lawlessness It's a rejection of love in some way. And it's a rejection of what it means to be human in the most beautiful way possible. You're rejecting it. And with every sin, you become something less, less human and more unworthy of the kingdom of God. I mean, that's without Christianity. And this this atheist is saying, Don't be offended that the Bible's calling you a vile sinner. Deal with the truth. You know, it could be that this atheist is being a bit more loving than many pastors are today. Because he's willing to tell the truth. And I'd also just like to add, before we get to this next part, it's so beautiful. Before we get there, the only way that you're going to discover the freedom that Christianity offers is to enter into the courtroom. The courtroom is something you have to go through. You can't avoid. 
So you got to be bold. You've got to enter in. And when you do, you will find that the truth will set you free. And then you have to ask, how can this truth set me free when the truth that you just told me, David, is that I am guilty and deserving of chains and darkness and prison and death? Now we're getting to what makes Christianity unmatched by anything this world has to offer. Chapter 2 of your memoir, Your Cry for Mercy. Only when you face this courtroom sentence and hear it, you drop to your knees. And it's your, your bowed and humbled heart, as the verse says. And it says you're there alone with none to help you. And then you ask the judge for mercy. It says they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Verse 13. And when you cried out, something happened. God answered. Chapter 3 of your memoir, God's Rescuing Love. You get this new sentence. So verse 13 goes on. God delivered them from their distress. What's the distress? Your guilt and the looming shadow of death. Now there's a big problem here because doesn't it violate justice if you're freed from guilt? Yes, 100%. Justice is violated if you are freed from guilt, if, well, it's not, actually. It is, but it isn't. If there is one who has the authority to change the sentence, yet at the same time make sure justice is executed, well, that's a way. This is a way out. This is a way to freedom. In Christianity, the Son comes forth to take your record upon himself and give you his record. This is the kind of story where love and justice have reached the heights. The standard is the highest it could possibly go. Love is as high as it could go. Justice is as high as it can go. But there's... There is a requirement for you if you're going to have this new record. Because you're going to appear before the judge and you have two options. You could present to the judge your record or Christ's record. And you have to pick one of them. And you're like, well, of course I'm going to pick Christ's record. Are you sure? Because it seems to me that what we like to do is bargain with God with our own record. You've probably caught yourself doing it. God, how are you doing this to me? Have you not seen how hard I've been trying? Have you not seen the effort that I have been putting in? Have you not seen how hard my life is compared to everybody else? God, what are you doing to me? You're bargaining with your record. And as soon as you bargain with your record, you know what? You forfeit the record of Christ. The hardest part about taking Christ's record is abandoning the best parts about your own record. Because when you take Christ's record, you can no longer say, God, look what I've done for you. All you can say is, look what Christ has done for me. 
And when you begin to say, look what Christ has done for me, you realize there is nothing that God can't ask of you. There's nothing that's off limits because anything he asks of you will pale in comparison to what he asks his son to do on your behalf. Nothing's off limits. And that means you lose control of your life when you take his record. But that's a good thing. He's a better captain. Give him the helm. And then now, with this new record, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. There's nothing you can do wrong that would make him love you more or less. There's nothing you can do great that will make him love you more or less because his eyes are fixed upon you, laser-focused, intense, relentless love that will not be changed because he sees his son's record as he looks upon your face. No guilt, no shame, all gone. Where did they go? He wore them upon the cross. When he died, he was holding on to your sins. He is buried not in the shadow of death, but death itself. He's in the iron gates of hell. It shuts in upon him, and there your sins lay upon him inside of death. And then, He rises up out of that hell and leaves your sins there where they belong. And most Christians just stop there. That is not the end of your story. That's the beginning. Now you're given freedom. Not just forgiven, but freedom. Here is chapter four of your memoir. God's leading love. He brought you into freedom. Verse 14. He brought them out of the dark shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. So first he cleared your record. But then he starts pounding on this bronze prison gate that you are stuck behind until he shatters it open. And then he walks in and he sees these iron bars and he rips them apart. And then he unchains you from the chains of darkness and he lifts you up out of it. And he carries you out through the prison, through the courtroom, out into freedom. And you know what? You never have to go into the courtroom again. You're free from it. So if you are a Christian, why do you keep going back to this courtroom of guilt and shame? I mean, I suppose part of it's my fault because I really just took you in there. And so maybe that's true a little bit. Maybe you do have to go in there every once in a while and then see and remind yourself of the gift Forgiveness, and then you find your freedom all over again. It's like you're breathing fresh air all over again. And you're like, that's why I'm a Christian. I remember now. I forgot for a bit. Your sin has no claim on you. Guilt has no power here. And shame has no hold on your heart. But you keep returning to that same old guilt and shame and that same old trying to earn God's favor and love like a dog returns to its vomit. That is not your food. 
Your good food is the finished work of Christ. And this dark dungeon of death will never be your home. There's a beauty that you can walk into now. A freedom. And I want to do something. I want to read to you some quotes of some very last words of some atheists before they died. They didn't know the truth of this forgiveness and this freedom from death. So first, first guy, Sir Thomas Scott, Chancellor of England. His last words, Until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel that there are both, and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Thomas Paine, he's a deist, which essentially is there is only some impersonal force, not a real personal God, and certainly not a Christian God. And he wrote a book called The Age of Reason. It was a defense against Christianity. And look at what he says about the book. In his dying days, here's his words. Stay with me. For God's sake, I can't bear to be left alone. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them that the Age of Reason had never been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me, for I am on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. Voltaire, a famous anti-Christian writer, his words, last words, I have swallowed nothing but smoke. I have intoxicated myself with the incense that turned my head. I am abandoned by God and man. He said to his physician, I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months of life. When he was told this is not possible, he said, then I shall die and go to hell. His nurse said, for all the money in Europe, I wouldn't want to see another unbeliever die. All night he cried for forgiveness. And then David Hume famous philosopher, cried out on his deathbed, I am in flames. And it said that his desperation was a horrible scene. And then let me contrast that with just one Christian songwriter, Augustus Montague. He wrote the song Rock of Ages. Near his last, awakening from a sleep, here's what he said. Oh, what delights. Who can fathom the joy of the third heaven? The sky is clear. There is no cloud. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And then he died saying this, no mortal man can live after the glories which God has manifested to my soul. Facing death is a delight when you know that this is true. So how do you respond? Well, your memoir tells you. First with thanks. Chapter 5, your thanks. Thank God. Verse 15. Thank the Lord for his steadfast love 
and his wondrous works to the children of man. Like, we're not very good at thanking God, I don't think. Like, we're so dwelling on everything that's wrong with our day and what's happening when we have an eternal fount of joy that is being offered to us that is overflowing with thankfulness. And you know the, what happens when, when thankfulness is overflowing? It turns into praise. And this, this is chapter 6 of your memoir. Praising God here is done by telling your story. That's what these last verses in this memoir are getting at. You praise God by telling your story. You know, you think of praise as singing and lifting up your hands. And some of you, like, I know, like, we've been asking people, like, some of you want to lift up your hands a little more, but you're not really sure if you can, and you're looking around. But look, I want to tell you, this is just the beginning. The heights of praise is you telling your story to the world. But it's got to be a real story. It's got to be an honest story. It can't be fabricated, like raw, courageous story. And that's what praise is. That's what this verses are saying. And it's saying you have to. It's a command to tell your story. Because the reason why is your story is the best kind of story. You know the books and the movies that are filled, the best kind, that are ageless, they're filled with hope, they're stories of redemption. That's the kind of story that you are in. Don't be in a tragedy. The Christian story is here before you. Just jump into it. And here's why you're commanded to tell your story. Because as you do, for some that you tell this story to, they'll begin to hear something banging on the door of their heart. And they're saying, what is, what's happening to me? What is this? And you say, oh, that's my Savior. He's coming for you. And they say, oh, no. And you say, no, not that kind of way. He's not coming to deal with you. He's coming to deal with your sin. And he's going to get violent about it. But as he does, he's going to be able to peel the guilt and shame off of you and set you free to life forevermore. The world needs your story. You've got to tell it. And I just want to end with two of the last words of two men. One's name is Jesus and the other's name is Buddha. Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words, it is finished. Why does he say that? Because he strove on your behalf. For 40 days in the desert, Jesus fought for you. Satan, after him, he faced Satan. Satan tempted with every single thing he could throw at him. Every single way that you have been tempted in your life, Jesus was tempted with and was perfect. And then... Fast forward into the, this garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, before he's killed, he's praying to his father. And in this garden, he gets a vision of what he's about to face. He gets a vision of the darkness and death that humanity has awakened and stirred up. And he sees that he's about to face it. 
and he begins to sweat blood. Something that physically can happen to you if you're under enough stress. What caused him the stress? He caught a vision of what we awoke in the darkness that he would face the next day. And he faced it. He went to evil's end. He went to its root. He went into the heart of it all. Into the darkness, into the flames, and he went there to pay the ransom for your life. Because that place had a claim on you, whatever it is. And then he cried out, it is finished. And the sword that was lifted against you was lifted then to him. But, you know, he did something sneaky, I suppose. He snuck his own sword into hell. And there he did away with evil. He did away with hell's steward. And he grabbed you. And he pulled you up out of the flames. Out through the dungeon. Out through the courtyard of the prison. In through the courtroom. And out of the courtroom into freedom. Life forevermore is yours. That haunted house of terrors has been brought down. So praise him. Praise him by telling your story. The world desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father, help us to be people who drop to our knees, crying out, knowing that you are our only hope in this dark place of our sin, our guilt, and our shame in this dungeon of death that has hold on us. God, let us be free in you and go running out into the green meadows of joy and peace and life. God, show us that you're with us. You have brought us and you stayed with us along the way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.